Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Azita Ranizota, who's an American actress and the founder of Mina Arts Advocacy Coalition, which seeks to change the face of Hollywood. Azita's journey began in Afghanistan. Born in Kabul on the eve of the 1980s, Azita and her family were among the fortunate who were allowed to enter the United States by way of asylum. Unlike many others, they were given the chance to escape the violence and the poverty that surrounded them. Even at the age of four, the pain of leaving their lives, family, and friends behind, and the prospect of continuing life in an unknown land was difficult and traumatic for Azita. She looks back on her life with a sense of pride at the long, winding, and unforgiving road that helped shape her. From a young age, Azita recognized that she had a strong desire to take control of her own life and decide that it was time to take her life into her own hands in a very big way, which is why she moved to Los Angeles, California to pursue a career in the entertainment industry. It didn't take long for her far-reaching talent to be recognized, and today she's an accomplished actress in film and television. Today, Azita's purpose has evolved into an effort to give a voice to the voiceless. She's the founder of Mina Arts Advocacy Coalition, which aims to build a more balanced and positive representation of people from the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. If Azita isn't on the front lines talking to industry decision makers about how to solve issues related to misrepresentation, then she's empowering others who deserve the right to be themselves on the screen. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further ado, I bring you Azita Ranizoda. Azita Ranizoda, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I think the work that you do, Azita, is really necessary. And I think the best way to kind of unpack all that as we kind of go through this conversation is to start by asking you, in your own words, how do you define who you are? I think it's it's important. I think that knowing who you are is the impetus to actually living your life and your purpose, discovering what your purpose is. I would say that who I am is a young woman who straddles two identities, who tries to understand how to honor where she came from, what her heritage and her culture is, and then also honor how she was formed and raised and how she was influenced by the society that she was brought up in. And so for me, I think I'm a woman on a journey with a purpose that is still uncovering itself, to be honest. Um, but that's rooted in um, cultural identity and bringing about change in this world and hoping that that change is a part of her legacy when she leaves. Great. So let's let's play off of that now. Can you tell us what exactly that sense of change that you'd like to demonstrate, embark, and inspire in others actually is? The change that I hope to inspire in others is to allow them and to give them permission to truly be themselves. There's two parts of that for me. One is being an immigrant, eradicating shame around the fact that I come from a country that is known for war and poverty and warlords and 
sometimes terrorists and all these things, this, this kind of misinformed identity that's projected onto my home that is a one-pointed narrative. And so children that come from that part of the world, knowing that they can be proud of where they came from and everything that they were born under their circumstances and become whoever it is that they want to be. The second part of that is uh, being a woman, being a woman that helps other women demonstrate their own power and their own worth and that they have the confidence and an example of someone that is able to navigate heavy and complicated things and to really do it with grace and to create real change, real change, not just screaming into Twitter, but actually create real change so that they can live their life honestly and the way that they want to while creating an impact for themselves and for those around them. Mm-hmm. How did you in your in your journey of of becoming an actress in Hollywood now, how did you kind of cultivate that sense of that sense of being within yourself? How did that kind of all happen for you? The sense of being within myself was not an easy journey. I certainly didn't have an easy childhood. I didn't have an easy way in. Life was not planned, although I will say that it was predestined. Why were we one of the only families to receive political asylum to come to the United States from Afghanistan at that time? We didn't have to go through the refugee camps like the rest of our family. And so there was this kind of destiny for my family to escape war easily and to arrive safely into the United States. But there were no plans when we came here. Everything was kind of uncertain. There was no no future. What, what were we going to do? There was nothing but the clothes on our back. And so I wouldn't say that, that I had that kind of a childhood where your parents really helped you kind of navigate your, you know, first grade and your homework and this, oh, you're really good at this. So, you know, I didn't have any structure. There wasn't any structure for us. It was get yourself ready and let's, you know, figure out how to live life. That idea of, of knowing who I was going to be or how I was going to create change was not something that was something that was easy to navigate. But I did know that whole time that who I was was enough, even though that sounds crazy, even though there was shame that we were different, that we weren't the same as every beautiful blonde kid in the neighborhood, that, you know, we were brown and... and just looked different and were different and ate different and my parents spoke differently. Even though there was shame in that, I never shied away from trying to make sure that that I fit in and that they understood me and that they respected me also. And so there was always, I think, some sense of resiliency and determination in me, which unfortunately also kind of was rooted in trying to get people to understand me and to respect me from a very early age. Hmm. It seems like that was very innate in you because that doesn't seem, that's not the case for everybody, right? It's not the case for everybody to have that sense of courage, even against all odds, to kind of step into a space that they're not comfortable with such that they can be seen and or heard even when everything else is telling them that they're different or they may be inadequate or they may not belong. So 
one, do you think that's innate to you specifically? And then two, how do you think it was cultivated in your upbringing then? How did you kind of flourish in that space, if at all? I do think it was innate. And I don't know why. I have no idea. I, I will go ahead and say um, higher purpose, higher presence, uh, God, spirit. I, I will say that in my DNA, there is courage. There is the blood of Afghans. There is resiliency and courage. Unfortunately, it's shrouded in post-traumatic stress disorder and generational trauma and depression. But in our blood for hundreds of years, we have been warriors and tribal leaders, and we have known how to protect our, our land and our homes and to provide for ourselves with very little. So I think that's something that's within our dynamic if we're willing to get out of the way of the pain that comes with that those kinds of experiences. Hmm. So how do you then get out of the way of the pain? How do you get out of the way of the loss? How do you get out of the way of everything else that's in front of you that's telling you that it's very difficult to go forward? How does that happen? It's not easy. <laughs> Right? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, that, that doesn't happen easily. You know, Bakhtash, the version that you are getting of me now is there are many iterations before. The pain that I experienced as a child of immigrants that lost everything, going to the airport and picking family members up, coming out of refugee camps with the clothes on their backs and their, you know, plastic bags. You know, that's what they held and tears in their eyes coming to hug everybody and I don't know what's going on. I'm four or five years old and I'm clutching onto my mom and I'm feeling all of this, this pain, this journey that our families went through. That is life altering. You know, it splits your atoms. You can never be the same. And you don't heal from that easily. You don't just turn around and say, oh yeah, I'm great, I'm perfect, I'm gonna go to school and I'm gonna play lacrosse. You know, you, you carry with you these things into every situation, every classroom, everything you walk into. And so you are different. You are just inherently different when you come into those rooms. And there's such a gift in that, in that pain. Some people take it and it becomes their whole life and it becomes their identity. So many of us become stuck with the fact that we are children of war and that that was our journey and poor us and poor our people and poor this and oh my God and Hodor John. But the gift is that if we can step away from that narrative and that story and understand how we can transform, how much strength is within that. But the fact that this portion of their life is now different and now they can, you know, live a new path, there is a celebration to that. You know, there should be a celebration to their children being able to go to university safely and all of these other things. And so the moving through the pain was not simple. I was very impulsive and I was very in need to take control of my life back. You know, I battled a tremendous amount of misogyny and like I like to say, the dark side of cultural oppression though you never want to say anything bad against the culture, there is a large, especially when I grew up, you know, misogyny that I wasn't allowed to stay after school or to, you know, date or to participate in sports because then I would, you know, be sweating and around boys. I mean, it was, 
there was a lot of control that I had to then say, no, I want to do these things. I'm going to do these things, or I'm going to do these things because I'll get straight A's or so you'll have to let me at least take one. Like I found ways to negotiate, you know, well, I'm going to work three jobs over the summer because then, and then I'll have a bank account. And if I have a bank account, then that means that I can pay for my own college applications and you'll pay for the other 50%. So I negotiated with my family quite a bit and that must've been through the help of, I don't know, television or <laughs> I don't know, because <laughs> I didn't have that example. So the way through the pain for me was, was not elegant. It was messy at times and it was impulsive and then it was graceful and really kind of metamorphosized into this gift to be able to find a way to be graceful amongst that kind of pressure. But that did not happen easily. This is, this is who I am now. But I wouldn't be who I am now without having made those kinds of mistakes or having gone through the pain that I went through. Let's dig a little deeper into that. Let's talk about how you finished a degree in English, English literature. You came home. How did the conversation with your parents about you wanting to go to Hollywood take shape? And what was the reaction? And how did you kind of, how did that manifest? I, I just, I just bought a one-way ticket <laughs> and I didn't really have a discussion about it. I just said, I'm going to Los Angeles. And they kind of laughed. I think my dad laughed actually. And he said, oh yeah, you think so? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to work all summer and I'm going to save thousands of dollars and you're not going to have to help me at all. And he just kind of laughed. He's like, if you think you can do it, good luck. And, you know, we weren't a family that traveled. I don't know about you, but we didn't, we didn't go places. You know, we didn't go on planes and take vacations. My Afghans don't vacation, you know, just <laughs> not that generation. So I was really kind of doing something that nobody in my family had done. And I just, I just did it. And I didn't know what I was doing, but there was something guiding me there that said, this is where you have to be. This is where you have to go. And I bought that one-way ticket. And I had a friend at university whose dad had just bought a house there and she was living there for the summer. And they let me live with them for the summer until I could find a job and find a place to live. And I did all of that within 90 days. And I was there and that was it. And did you go to Hollywood? Did you go to Los Angeles with the intention of getting into films and television? Yes. Yes. And I do want to say though, my mom who cried the whole time mm. and chased the car on the way to the airport with holy water and threw it on the back of the car. Um, just like she did every school bus every year. I had to deal with that. <laughs> I don't know if so you would come back safely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The first day of school, there would be like water thrown on the back of the bus. I was like, don't mind us. We're not different at all. Um, I did. I came out here to, to get into the film business. And I actually didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if I was going to pursue some of the journalism that I had studied, if I was going to be an anchor on like an entertainment show, if I was going to become an executive or work as an agent, even uh, I wanted to be an actress, but I didn't think that, that that was even remotely a possibility. I had never really studied acting except for acting class in high school. So it was a very foreign concept, but it was something that I wanted to be close to. 
And so when I came out here, I, I worked full time at E networks and learned about the business and learned about, you know, being on air and was able to take acting classes as well during that time. So because I was able to kind of get a little bit of time to explore and see what the business was like for a couple years while I was studying acting and kind of expressing all that pain and all of that life in me, I really discovered that I had a little bit of a, a skill for it. And I don't know that I knew that, but I just knew that when I worked, other people liked to watch it. So that let me know that I was doing something that, okay, maybe I can do this. Like maybe there is something here, even though it was all very rough and um, it was raw, you know, just, it wasn't, there was again, no structure to it. There was no craft. It was just this big ball of history and emotions laid on the path of a stage in a dark 99 seat theater in front of 40 acting kids. And I was like, is that something? <laughs> Does that work? <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks. Right. Right. So I have to ask as somebody who personally was raised with 1980s films, I personally learned English through 19, watching 1980s films, especially action films. What films and or television series kind of made the biggest impression on you and why? Well, my dad, it was the action movies with my dad. It was Rambo and it was anything Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator. Those were bonding moments for us. You know, I really loved those action films with him. My mom, it was a lot of Bollywood cinema. You know, she spent a lot of her life in India and spoke all the languages. So we would go to the Bollywood cinema in Falls Church, Virginia. But uh, it was really television that was by you know, 24 hours a day. And, and a lot of it was the stuff from the seventies that was on reruns, the comedies on like the UPN. So three's company, my mom and dad would watch, like they just laugh. My mom loves to laugh, like she loves comedies. And so a lot of those sitcoms like silver spoon and who's the boss, who's the boss had a big, big impact. I mean, first of all, they were like kind of Brown, and I was like, you know, they kind of look like us. Um, so that was a big deal. But it was really the Cosby show, which, you know, I know you can't really say anymore. But I really responded to black television. Um, I responded to the storylines and the morality lines and the things that they navigated and dealt with um, on those television shows. I really loved it. So, I mean, it was probably the Cosby show that had the biggest impact on me. That's so interesting. And so does your exposure at a young age to all the TV and all the films that you mentioned, whether it was watching action films with your father or Bollywood with your mother or watching the Cosby show, how does that now, if at all, show up in your work today? I definitely would say I do have a space for comedy even though I was never trained in it. I thought the drama, 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 like all oh, this pain, I'm going to use all this pain, which I can do. But there was a thing that happened when I came here where I was adept at and skillful at handling some comedy stuff, which was a natural rhythm in me from watching those shows 24 hours a day, you know, with her. And so I think that that definitely had some, some influence and some impact. And I always say that that was the purpose, you know, that I learned English watching television and 
it was the place, it was the time when no one really fought in my home and we didn't see children with missing limbs and the news wasn't on and it wasn't just focused on, you know, war and Afghanistan and, and what's going on there. There was, uh, there was freedom to escape into someone else's reality and into that bubble and into that television. And so I always say that that was, you know, the guiding force, although I'm not a hundred percent sure that it really shaped me. I think that like my life and the journey of my life shaped me and influenced me into being an artist. Those things just was like the icing on this kind of weird dysfunctional cake that I wanted to go taste. I wanted to go taste that, that joy. I wanted to live in that box. I wanted to have some freedom from the war and from the news and all of those things. And so I know I've talked about that quite a bit, but I, I'm not so sure that was a thousand percent the reason why I became, I wanted to become or, or pursued a life in the arts. Hmm. You mean the idea of escapism? Yeah. Also, you know, there is something in the seed of that where I wanted to give people joy. I wanted to give people escape, you know, like that seed of like, well, I want to do that too. I want to be able to like have people escape to TV and fantasy and get away from their pain and their reality. So that was a part of it as well. And so as you're kind of navigating the landscape of Hollywood, as you've been for the last 16 years, help us understand what people on the outside don't understand about Hollywood that you've now learned while being in it. Help us understand what we're missing. Hollywood is a, a very small town and there are some very ugly parts to it. There are people that crave fame and will do anything to achieve it. They don't care at all. Like they just, they want to be famous. They want free things. They want people to take their photograph. They want to be known for whatever it is that they want to be known for. And then that's just one side of it. And that's what gets attention. You know, that's what the media fixates on. That's what the media wants to share. That's what people want to share. It's gossip. And then there's this whole other side of it, which is creativity and art and community. There is so many wonderful people here that are involved in humanitarian work. Um, there are so many people like myself that really came from absolutely nothing. You didn't have like a silver spoon in my map that nobody supported me. I can't tell you how many jobs I had and and work as a working actor like I, I'm not famous and that's not my goal my goal was always to be a working actress to be able to have a craft and learn how to you know live my life with purpose and to be talented in that craft and obviously that purpose has expanded but there are a number of people out here that are deeply committed to being better and, you know, go to the park with their families and barbecue and are super low key and loving. And that's a, a side of Hollywood that people don't see at all. Now the business is super cutthroat and tough and impossible. Nepotism and knowing somebody and being born into this business and all of those other things definitely put you on the right path. I didn't know anybody and I certainly didn't have any 
big high friends and places. There was no big connection. There was no anything. So it is possible to work and to kind of get in there and to break into the business in some ways or the other, but it's not an easy business and it's definitely a survival of the fittest. It will chew you up and spit you out. It is not meant to be kind to you. You want to do this, it's going to hurt you. It's going to reject you. It's going to reject your 75th screenplay. It's going to reject your 75th audition. You're going to get one yes out of 100, 150 no's. There are going to be years where you make tons of money and there's going to be years where you fall below the poverty line. That is the truth of not being a super plus, 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 a plus, plus, plus. You know, not being born into a family of blah, 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 blah. Especially, you know, right now with all the political heat, people are like, you people in Hollywood, just sip it. I'm like, most of the people in Hollywood are union workers and laborers. You know, they're not. It's the very famous ones that probably need to zip it. I don't really think they help the political parties anyway, but. <laughs> and so what's really interesting about your your description of how the landscape of Hollywood is, what it's like to be on the inside, your upbringing and your background in some senses perfectly crafted and or formed the strengths, which were one point weaknesses for you in being that space. Meaning in some sense, getting all those rejections for you must've been difficult, but almost like no skin off your back, right? Like what I mean to say is people who have adverse backgrounds, meaning dealing with adversity from a young age and going to a place like Hollywood couldn't have been too terribly difficult, right? Like there, there, there must've been some sense of how your upbringing has helped you in Hollywood as a matter of having the mindset to kind of overcome challenges. Yeah, yes. I do think that that is beneficial. And I do think that when you have experienced loss and pain and then you're kind of getting rejected, I, the gift I've always had, although it's not 10 out of 10 times, I'd say seven out of 10 times, I don't take it personally. Seven out of 10 times, I'm like, okay, wasn't mine. Three out of those 10 times, I am gutted. You know, like my heart was invested into it. And I really, you really feel that loss. Like you're just like, oh my God, that was, uh, and it, it just, that's, that's a part of rejection is you can only get punched in the face so many times, but like, you know, the Stoics say you can't want to be a boxer and that complained when you get punched in the face, you were then dismissing your entire reality. If you choose to be a boxer, you're going to choose to get punched in the face. And that's a bit of choosing to be an artist. If you choose to be an artist, you're going to be rejected. And if you then deny that rejection or you hate that rejection, then you're denying your reality. So it comes with it, it has to be a part of it. And yes, I think that having a, a mindset that knows what it means to lose and still knows that she's going to be okay, that's the other side of it. It's like, I don't get trapped into that lose spiral. It's like, okay, I lost this one. The next one's mine. And also that that's a Kobe, that's a Mamba mentality in the book Relentless. I think Kobe said this, I didn't come here to play. I came here to win. It's definitely a battle and it's an emotional game. And it's a business that's set up to hurt you. It's not here to love you. And it's so funny because so many people that come into Hollywood to pursue these goals 
are looking to be loved and admired because they didn't get it in their childhood. And then they pick a business that is literally constructed to really never love you back. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's such a good insight to have from our conversation. I think that's so important to understand that. Now, let's talk about the organization which you founded, Mina Arts Advocacy Coalition. So let's talk about how representation matters as it pertains to TV, media, and film, uh, in particular in terms of messaging. What is it like in the context of today to be an Afghan-American in Hollywood? What roles do you say yes to? What roles do you say no to? How can people step out of perpetuating stereotypes about certain backgrounds, especially as it pertains to the greater Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia? Help us understand that work that you're doing. Wonderful question. Thank you. As far as messaging goes, through the work that I've been doing, what I've learned is that, especially within our community, MENA, South Asian, Muslim, is that the messaging, for whatever reason, is so skewed to be dangerous that it influences culture. It's so skewed to perpetuate harm against our communities. And that's my problem with it. Even in the news, when there's some sort of a a shooting, if it's a terror attack, if it's a Muslim terror attack, it's reported on 90 times more, right? It will be perpetuated in the media like 90 times more than any other kind of a shooting. In Hollywood, which is liberal and progressive and, you know, wants to do the right thing, they will live in the space of continuing to marginalize and place narrow ideas on people from the culture. 78% of the time, those people will be playing terrorists from that part of the world. And so when you lean into a perspective and a perception that 80% of the time that you see anybody from the Middle East, North Africa, or South Asia, that they're a bad person, they're involved in war, they are either part of a war narrative or they're the bad guy, then that influences culture. And it's just proven down every study that children and adults learn about other cultures through the media. That is their main form of education. And so when you're consistently educating somebody about a culture by portraying them in a way that they are oppressed or that they are the oppressor and they are a violent oppressor, then we have no way to win in that space. Then all the good stories kind of get erased because whenever that one large narrative comes, that's always going to be the main topic of focus. It's always going to take precedent over the really great stories. And so you have to create balance. Listen, I know there are terrorists and there's oppression. I've battled that personally. Do I think it's 80% of the culture? No. I think that those are concentrated circumstances. And I said this in my talk, and I try to bring this up with people, you know, when I can, because they're like, well, you know, you're not even that much of the US population. And I'm like, well, first of all, television is global. Now it's a global audience. But also, if you only portrayed, if we only continue to portray African Americans as gangbangers, what would we be doing if 80% of the time we continue to portray African-Americans as slaves 
or gangbangers. The harm, the perpetual harm that has on our society as a whole, it becomes a disease. And for some reason within our community, luckily the African-American community has so many stars. Talk about activists and talk about trailblazers. Ava DuVarney just comes to mind, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, these people are knocking doors down and bringing their community with them. And the African-American community is in a wonderful job of, of rising and not leaving anybody behind, of rising others with, with them. And even our community, some of my greatest champions are African-American leaders in that space that have blazed those paths before. And so within our community, there really wasn't anybody standing up for us when it came to our portrayals. And I didn't understand having been in Hollywood for 20 years, having been in the bit working in the business, you know, I've been a Screen Actors Guild member since 2004. I didn't understand why there wasn't any group speaking up for us or speaking out for us or collecting us or creating a coalition for us or helping navigate these awful portrayals. And so I decided to take it upon myself um, in 2015. And that's kind of become the labor of my love, the labor of my purpose, the labor of my, my journey. It is unrelenting and important and something that will always be something that I do because as someone who's been in the inside, I've been able to cultivate my relationships to create that change for our community, as opposed to saying, oh, let me, can I network with you to get this job? I'm like, yo, I need to talk to you about something that's really important. And I want to show you this video. And can I come into your studio and talk to like your top executives about this stuff? And they're like, oh my gosh, please, we didn't even know. And that's the thing. You know, that's the thing with activism. You know, there's a lot of people that scream on Twitter and there's a lot of people that you know, get angry and, and they should, they get, should get angry, but they're not cultivating change, right? Not actually going into the boardrooms and doing that kind of really laborious, heavy, heavy lifting to help open up people's eyes to what's going on. 10 out of 10 times when I'm educating somebody on the numbers and the statistics and what's happened and the history of everything from Libyan terrorists and back to the future, that kind of subtle, subtle messaging, right? Bad guys. Oh, bad guys. Oh, okay. More bad guys. Oh, look at those. Look at those bad brown guys. Look at, oh, look at their headscarf. Oh, she might have a bomb strapped underneath there. That messaging, right? That creates all this fear within us. People don't know. They're like, I didn't know the numbers were so skewed. Who's getting it right? And then they become curious and they become awake. And I would say 10 out of 10 times, I'm seeing a change to where they're like, well, let's hire a person from that background here because we need to just, just change the numbers a little bit. And so it's slowly just seeping into the decision makers' brains on what's actually going on. And so that's how I've been able to position myself in the business in this way to be able to kind of create this path for Middle Eastern, North African, South Asian and, you know, Muslim performers. Azito, that's amazing. That's how your work came onto my radar is the fact that you were somebody on the inside who's done all the heavy lifting, who knows the landscape, and now is in a place to not only cultivate new talent and guide them in the path in a way probably in which you wish you had, but also forging a conversation with decision makers 
and enlightening them in terms of what the realities are for people from backgrounds like yours to better understand what exactly they're perpetuating in terms of a stereotype, in terms of a narrative that quite literally isn't fair, isn't fully representative, and is actually an injustice for what it means to be an American. It's an injustice for what this current moment actually requires of us. And think about the pain. You know, people are already living so much pain and shame, and then to continue to have to battle these myths that continue to be perpetrated by people that are doing harm. They're actively speaking out against harm, but then they turn around and they're harming a a group that has been invisible to them. We have not been a part of the diversity conversation. And that's a lot of it's because they're like, oh, Muslim, Muslim, Muslim. But you can't talk about religion when you talk about diversity initiatives and hiring practices and all those things. And also Muslim is so varied and it's it's the largest population in America are black Muslims. So it was really kind of cornering us into a specific conversation as opposed to having a seat at the table with you know other groups that are navigating these things, Latinxes and Native Americans who are essentially invisible. You know, we occupy their land. And I think in the study that we were lucky to, you know, correspond with UCLA on, we were nearly invisible on television. Native Americans were completely invisible as series regulars. And that this is so harmful because then we're exotics, right? We're the others, we're unknown. And when you're unknown, like the Native American, unknown, the only thing we know about you guys is you, you smoke drugs and you used to, you used to scout people. That's you, you still, you're, you're a drug addict. Like whatever it is that's perpetuating about this beautiful culture, this indigenous people, that is continuing to be harmed. And someone like Ava DuVarney, who's African-American, just sold the first Native American television show to NBC, I believe. I'm not sure of the network, but now we'll have five Native Americans on television for the first time. Hopefully if the TV show gets picked up, NBC, if you're listening, and that will take us from zero to five. And it's so important because then people will learn about the culture because that's how people learn about cultures that are outside of their own is through television and entertainment. Azito, I love that. And so as we kind of wrap up this conversation, the one question I like to ask all my guests is the way to kind of close is, you know, what is your message for the world? For the world that's listening, whomever has taken the time to sit through this entire thing, first of all, thank you. You know, we have a short time on this planet. And I think that my message to everybody is be brave. Find the courage within yourself to live brightly and loudly and warmly and don't hold back because it's fleeting. And the things that you want to say, say them. And the people that you want to love, love them. And the change that you want to see, go out there and shake some cages and knock on some doors because anything is possible. Anything can happen. And so just truly, truly, I hope that we all take the time to really believe in ourselves and to trust in ourselves and to trust in our inner guidance. Thank you for being the light in the darkness. <laughs> well, thank you for thinking of me that way. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. 
Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.